to John's Gospel, chapter 21. Again, tonight, when we come to our sermon, we will be hopping around a little from passage to passage, but this is a key passage in this evening's theme, the restoration of Simon Peter. Let me bring to you a, a little suggestion, a little thought, something that you can ponder over your coffee and crackers this evening uh, before you retire for the night. Uh, some time ago, I heard Peter described in this way, Simon Peter, the fragile stone. The fragile stone. It's not an original title. I got it from somebody else, but I'm quite taken with it. It seems a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? A stone who's fragile. And yet as we look at Simon Peter's life, in many ways we see him strong, we see him fearless, but we also see him weak and compromised. Ponder that this evening. Discuss it with others. Is Simon Peter the fragile stone? We read the Word of God in John 21 from the beginning. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. May the Lord bless. Uh, before you uh, this evening, as I've indicated, we uh, will be hopping around a, a little, uh, but this will be the major passage that we will be considering uh, tonight, John 21. Okay, so I want you to imagine that your daughter is 18 years of age, uh, and uh, she has just very recently got her driver's license. Uh, I know there's different stages in your driver's license, uh, but this means that she's now allowed to take the car out on her own. She's been successful in passing whatever tests are involved, and uh, she's got the okay from the government to drive the car on her own. She comes and asks you if she may borrow the car. She's going out with a few friends for an evening, uh, nothing out of order. Uh, they're just going into Charlottetown, and they're going to Tim Hortons for a donut and a coffee. They're going to walk on the boardwalk, and then they're going to come back home. You've been dreading this moment. You pre pretend it's all okay. You act really cool. Oh, yeah, that's no problem. Just, you know, tell me what you're doing. But inwardly, you're going, oh, no. And you speak to your wife and say, guess what? She wants to borrow the car. You give her some fairly strict instructions. Watch your speed. Make sure you put your belts on. Don't let the others distract you. Don't be showing off. All of those things. Be careful when you're parking. Yes, Dad. Yes, Dad. 
She comes in later that evening, and as soon as she walks in the door, you know that something is wrong. She utters those very troubling words, don't worry, Dad, there's nothing wrong. You can immediately see that something has happened. She explains to you that they uh, were out in the car and they decided to pull into a little park uh, just to have an ice cream and a, and, a, and a walk. They were having quite the night of it. And uh, as they went into this uh, park, there was a car park, and uh, re remarkably a tree just happened to, to get a little close to the car. And this uh, tree managed to put a dent in the back of the car. Oh, it's not bad, Dad. It's not bad. Those also are worrying words. So out you go to have a look at the dent, and sure enough, there's a dent in the back and in the side. A scrape in the paintwork along the back and along the side. You say, well, it's okay. No one's hurt. You're all fine. Sorry it happened. You're a bit shaken. And the next morning, you're having breakfast, you and your daughter. You're sitting there at the breakfast table and you say to her, do you want some cereal? Yeah, okay. Milk? Yeah, milk. But you don't really have a conversation. Sort of frosty. Frosty. Forgive the pun, I'm realizing that's a breakfast cereal. <laughs> it's kind of tense. You okay? Yeah, I'm okay. You sleep all right? Yeah, fine. Conversation doesn't flow. There's a distance. There's a tension. She's your daughter. You are her father. Nothing can change that. But nevertheless, something of, in terms of your communication, your relationship, your closeness has been damaged albeit temporarily. And that's exactly what happened to Simon Peter and the Lord Jesus Christ. We left him this morning weeping bitterly in the courtyard of the high priest's house. Not once, not twice, but three times he had denied that he knew Jesus. Three times he had with vehemence spoken and had said to those who had accused him of being a follower of Jesus that he knew nothing about Jesus and wasn't involved with him at all. And now he is broken and sad and discouraged and depressed and cast down because he's let the Savior down at a key moment in his life when the Savior was looking for support from his disciples. Instead of support, he gets denial from Simon Peter. He's still a believer. He still has faith in Jesus Christ. He's still a child of God. Nothing can change that. We saw that this morning. But there's a distance between him and the Savior. There's an atmosphere. There's feeling has come in in terms of their relationship. Their communion and their fellowship has been marred and broken. And one of the worst things about all of this is this. That Simon Peter is not convinced He's going to be able to get this sorted out. Jesus has been put on trial. Jesus has been put to death. Oh, you say, well, 
Peter would have remembered all those times when Jesus spoke to him and to the other disciples about his resurrection. But at this particular moment, he is so cast down. He's so focused upon his failure, his letting down of the Savior, that all of those teachings that he had received from Jesus would not immediately come flooding into his mind. Will I ever be able to get this sorted out? His communion and fellowship with Jesus is marred and broken. He's depressed, discouraged, downhearted, and sad. But this evening, our focus is on the restoration of Peter. Peter on the shore. Peter being restored into close fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter recognizing before Jesus that he's, he's failed him, and the Savior graciously reaching out to him again and, and receiving him, that they might walk closely and that Peter might serve well in the church. Now, can I suggest to you this evening that there are five steps in the restoration of Simon Peter. Here is a believer, a saint, a child of God, being restored into close fellowship with the Savior. And if we look at the Scriptures, it would seem to me that John 21 is key, but there are other passages as well that speak to us about how Simon Peter ended up being restored closely to the Savior. May I suggest to you, first of all, that one of the elements in his restoration was the prayers of Jesus. The prayers of Jesus. We saw earlier in, an, in a key text in Luke chapter 22 and at verse 31 that the Savior promised to pray for Simon Peter. Luke 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. That's plural. The you there refers to all of the disciples. But here's the singular. But I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith, Peter, may not fail. And when you, Peter, have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I have prayed for you. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is interceding for Peter. He's praying for Peter. Hugh Martin, who wrote a very useful book on Simon Peter, I think it's entitled Just Simon Peter, makes the following comment. You can ponder this later after you've pondered the fragile stone title. All that separates Peter from Judas is the prayers of Jesus. All that separates Peter from Judas is the prayers of G Judah, Jesus. Now that's probably an overstatement, but it's worth pondering. The Savior is praying for Simon Peter, praying for his recovery, praying for his restoration. Now I know, as you know, that there is more involved in the intercession of Christ than the prayers of Jesus. You know and I know that when we talk about the intercession of Jesus, we're thinking about our Savior at the right hand of the Father, pleading our cause, pleading the merits of His sacrifice on our behalf. But included in the intercession of Jesus is undoubtedly the prayers of Jesus, the Savior remembering us before the throne of God, 
pleading our case before the Father. Do you not find that encouraging this evening? The Lord Jesus Christ was here. The Lord Jesus Christ lived and moved among men, took to himself true and real humanity, was born into the home of Mary and Joseph in the town of Nazareth there, had brothers and sisters after he was born, shared a room, I'm sure, with his brothers, saw them fighting, heard his sisters squabbling over who had taken whose sandals, had a nightmare and Bertha in his family as we all have. He understands the dynamics of family life. He understands the pressures and, and, and problems of everyday living in a fallen world. Not fallen himself, of course, but living in a fallen world. A world that is out of joint. Jesus understands it. And we're encouraged this evening in the knowledge that he's praying for us at the Father's right hand and praying as one who's been there. Draw comfort from this. Draw heart this evening. Peter fell and messed up very badly, but Jesus never gave up on him and never failed to pray for him. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We have a high priest who can sympathize with us, can understand us, knows what it is to be tempted, pleading our case before the Father on high. So there is this promise, promise given to Peter, I will pray for you. But there's something else here, not only the prayers of Jesus, but secondly, may I suggest to you that the empty tomb was one of the steps in Peter's restoration. There's a lovely portion here in the previous chapter, in John chapter 20. Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. The stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. She runs and she gets Peter and John. And they immediately, they must have been sharing digs together somewhere, I think, in Jerusalem, and they begin to run to the tomb. It would appear that John is a little fitter than Peter, for he gets there first. John being John, pensive, contemplative, stands and looks in. Peter being Peter, although he arrives second, he's not going to stand at the door. He's going to go in. He's going to see what's happening. He's just one of those plucky fellows, isn't he? Who doesn't hang about. You know, when you go to a wedding sometimes and you're hanging about, I, I don't know if weddings are the same here in Canada. I imagine they are. There's a fair bit of hanging around, isn't there? And then eventually someone will say, uh, please, ladies and gentlemen, join us for the meal. You know and folk are going, well, I wonder where the meal is. Oh, it could be in that room over there, or maybe it's over there. And there's a bit of uncertainty. And then some plucky fellow will come along and just open the door and say, come on, it's in here. And we all follow. That's Peter. That's Peter. No hanging about. Comes to the empty tomb, looks in, goes in. Goes in. And Jesus is not there. 
And I think at that moment, all of the teaching that he had heard from the Savior concerning his death and his resurrection would have come back to him. I think that at that moment, an awareness would have dawned upon him that the Savior had risen. And how can that be described as a step in his restoration? Well, in this way, it would have awakened hope within his heart that, yes, I am going to be able to get this matter sorted out. I'm going to be able to see the Savior again. He died on the cross. And Peter would have wondered, will we ever be able to speak? Will we ever be able to get this issue rectified and put right? And now as he stands in the, in the empty tomb, there would have been hope welling up within his heart that Christ had risen and that he would see him. The prayers of Jesus, the empty tomb, the word of encouragement. Now, when we come to the gospel accounts of the resurrection, it's a little bit tricky just to work out the exact chronology of the resurrection appearances. But when we turn to Mark chapter 16, we discover that a group of women come to the tomb on that first the Easter Sunday morning. And when they come to the tomb, they see Mark 16, 5, a young man sitting there dressed in a white robe. And this young man in the white robe, he's obviously an angel. He speaks with the women and he says, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. He's risen. He's not here. Go. Tell his disciples and Peter. And Peter. I think these are among the most encouraging words that you will find in the whole of Scripture. And Peter. How are they encouraging? Our Savior, the Lord Jesus, through this angel, is sending a particular word of greeting to Simon Peter. Simon Peter who's failed him. Simon Peter who's let him down. Simon Peter who's messed up, who's denied him in a crucial moment. But now the Savior through the angel is sending a particular word of encouragement to Peter. Imagine when he received this word. We've been to the tomb. The tomb is empty. The Savior is risen. And the angel was there. And he says that the Savior is asking for you, Peter. He's asking for you. You know, sometimes you can have words with people. All of us can overstate ourselves. We can upset folk. We can speak inappropriately. And a little distance can come between us and other people. But when a third party known to both of us meets that other person with whom we've kind of fallen out, and they come back and tell us, I was talking there to George, and he was asking for you. He was asking for you. Doesn't it encourage you? Doesn't it? And that's exactly what happened here. In a sense, Peter had fallen out with the Savior. He had fallen out with the Savior. But the Savior is asking for him. The word of encouragement.
And then the fourth step is this. There's a private meeting. Wouldn't you love to know what happened at this private meeting on the first Easter Sunday? It's spoken about in Luke chapter 24 and at verse 34, the disciples report that the Lord has met with Peter. And again, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 5, when he's speaking about the different resurrection appearances, makes reference there to a meeting which was held between the Lord Jesus, the risen Savior, and Simon Peter. Now, we don't know anything else about it. Not a thing. We can speculate. I imagine that Peter was broken. I imagine that Peter was confessing to Jesus his sin. I imagine that Peter was broken in the presence of the Savior and acknowledging to Christ that he had done great wrong and, and praying for forgiveness and asking to be restored into fellowship with Jesus again. The prayers of Jesus, the empty tomb, the word of encouragement, the private meeting, and the public reinstatement. That's what we have here in John 21, the public reinstatement. Jesus and Peter have met personally one-to-one. -one. Peter has undoubtedly confessed his sin and wrongdoing unto the Savior. He's been broken in the presence of the Lord. The Savior has graciously reached out to him and been restored to him. But now in the presence of other disciples, Jesus is going to publicly reinstate Peter, so that the others know that Christ has forgiven him and that he's back on track in fellowship with Jesus. Now the set here is important in John 21. Peter denied Jesus three times by a fire. <coughs> and here Jesus is going to probe Peter three times by a fire. It all happens by the Sea of Galilee, which is the very place where Jesus called Peter to be a disciple. So the set, the backdrop, is important. Seven of the disciples decide to go out fishing. Peter's the leading person here. I'm going fishing, he says. Verse 3, and they say, we'll go with you. Now, why are they doing this? Opinion is divided into two camps. Some people say this is them turning their backs on the Savior. They've decided to give up being followers and disciples of Christ. They're going back to the old life. They're returning to the boats. Others, and I'm in this camp, they say, no, 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 no. What is happening here is this, that the disciples aren't quite clear after the resurrection of Jesus what their ongoing relationship is to be with him. They're not just 100% clear about that. Things are different. Previously, he was with them all the time. Now he comes and goes. His very body, his very way of conducting himself and of, of, of acting is, is different than it was previously. So they're a little bit knocked about. They're not quite sure of their role, of, of what their calling is in this new post-resurrection situation. When someone in your family is undergoing major surgery, how do you react? Some people just want to get alone, take their phone off, talk to nobody, and wait for word from the hospital. 
Other people react in an entirely different way. They get out the vacuum and they decide they're going to run around the house and vacuum, even though it doesn't need vacuumed. They've got to do something or, I don't know, they put on a big washing or they wash the car or cut the grass or do some of those things. You know, just get busy, get busy, keep busy. And that's what I think Peter's doing here. He's getting busy because he's not sure what to do with himself. He's not sure what the situation is. So they go out in a boat and they fish all night and they catch nothing. And as they're coming to shore, there's a man on the shore and he speaks to them and he suggests to them that they should cast their net on the right side of the boat and they'll find some fish. And John recognizes the man on the shore to be none other than the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who there at a little charcoal fire is preparing a breakfast for them. Now, Peter being Peter, as soon as he realizes that this is the master, he's out of the boat. He leaves the rest of them to haul in the fish, 153 of them. Uh, he's out of the boat and he's rushing to the shore. And when they come together, around the fire, to have this breakfast, Jesus begins to speak to Simon Peter. It's the public reinstatement in the presence of other disciples to show them that he and Peter are together again in fellowship. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now listen, please, to how I'm going to translate this. Because I do think it is in accord with the original here. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know. I have great affection for you. Now think about that for a moment. Man, when you plucked up the courage to eventually tell the special, special one in your life, your beloved that you loved her. And she said to you, that's very nice, I have great affection for you. How do you have felt about that? <laughs> I think you'd have felt, that's just not on quite the same level. <laughs> so you'd have tried it again, wouldn't you? <laughs> and if she came back a second time and said, do you have, you know, I have great affection for you, you would be going, I'll keep this ring in my pocket. <laughs> that's what's going on here. Do you love me? I have great affection for you. Do you love me? I have great affection for you. Why is he answering in that way? Why does he not just say, I love you, Lord? Why is he being so careful about his choice of words? This is Peter, impetuous Peter, who Hugh Martin says his, his, his hot heart is often in his mouth, and he's just spewing out all sorts of things. So why is he being so careful? Because he's changed. Remember, he was trusting too much in himself and his own natural ability and his physical strength. He's learned his lesson. He's come to recognize the opposition and the power of the evil one who's against him. He's come to recognize that he needs to walk in close communion with Jesus and that he's capable of falling into great sin. And he's nervous of overstating himself. Lest he makes a mess of it again. He's a changed man. 
And the third time the Savior says to him, Simon, son of John, do you have affection for me? Now that kind of hurt. You know, Lord, that I undoubtedly have affection for you. Jesus testing him, but more than that, wanting to demonstrate to the others that they're walking together, he and Peter, in fellowship, but that Peter has learned his lesson. Now, Jesus is not being harsh here. Because look what he says to him. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. If there is a distinction between lambs and sheep, and I'm not entirely sure that there is here, but if there is, it's, it's to do with the young of the flock, those who are young in the faith and those who are more mature. I'm giving you a work to do as one who will be a teacher in my church, who will build up my people, who will feed them and instruct them. This is Jesus. Do you know him this evening? Is he your savior? Are you trusting in him tonight? Have you come to him in brokenness, confessing your sin? And cried unto him in faith, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, I am an unworthy sinner. I've broken the law of God, but you have kept it. I deserve to die because of my sin, but you have died in my place. I cast myself upon you. I trust in you. Have you come to him this evening? Well, if you have, this Jesus in whom we trust tonight is a loving, gracious, forgiving, caring Savior who forgives and restores and reuses. I've got work for you to do, Peter. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Take the day of Pentecost. Who would you choose as the preacher on the day of Pentecost? You know, if a church committee was appointed to a, select a preacher for the day of Pentecost, who would you choose? Well, I would have chosen John. Would you not? He's a capable man. Look at his gospel. He didn't let the Lord down in the way that Peter did. But our Savior does not throw us onto the scrap heap of useless Christians never to be trusted again. No. But our Savior genuinely forgives and pardons and cleanses and restores and gives us work again to do in his kingdom. It's Peter who's going to preach on that great day, isn't it? When thousands are converted to Christ, he's going to be the instrument chosen by the Savior, the mighty instrument who will be preaching the gospel and so mightily used. So here it is then, the restoration of a fallen saint, a believer who's messed up, who got it all wrong, who let the Lord down big style, restored to communion with Christ and wonderfully used again in God's kingdom. Reminded of a story, and I'm especially reminded of it in this pulpit this evening. It's a story about the light bulb. Uh, so many people have gone for the fluorescent tubes. It completely ruins this illustration. I need a light bulb, and I've got a light bulb right here. I understand that Thomas Edison was, Edison was the inventor of the electric light bulb, and uh, 
He spent a lot of time working on the light bulb in some sort of little workshop that he had in London. And there he is. He's getting the light bulb all together. And eventually, it's finished. And he hands it to a young assistant and suggests to the young assistant that he might like to go upstairs and plug it into some sort of gadget they had for testing light bulbs. And the young assistant gets the light bulb. He's pretty excited. He's running up the stairs. He falls. And he smashes the light bulb. Now, have you ever tried to put a light bulb together? <laughs> Edison gets to work again. And eventually he gets it recreated. And what does he do? He gives it to the same young man to go up the same stairs, probably a little more slowly, to test it. The beautiful picture of the Savior's dealings with us, my friends. He doesn't write you off. He doesn't throw you on the scrap heap of failed Christians. He's the one who ransoms, heals, restores, forgives. And I suggest to you this evening that that is heartening to us. It's reassuring. It's encouraging. And it's a reminder to us also that just as the Savior dealt so graciously with a fallen saint, so we also are called to deal graciously with those who fall when we see penitence, brokenness, and distress over sin. The Savior is calling you and me to respond with similar grace and compassion, a willingness to forgive, to restore, to fellowship, and to trust our brother or our sister again in the work of Christ church. I trust that the Lord will use this word this evening in this place. And I trust tonight we'll go out praising our Savior for his grace and his love. Let us pray.